It's been so effective uh, that right now that the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief is the third largest relief organization in the U.S. behind FEMA and the Red Cross. It's that big. And uh, so we, we are fortunate. Yeah, that's exciting. And uh, we are fortunate uh, that we are going to be hosting a training here upcoming this week. Uh, if you want to be involved in disaster relief, there's the insert there in your worship folder. There's a table out in the ministry mall. You can stop and ask questions. We have some coordinators uh, that attend our church here. And you say, hey, listen, however God can use me. And then we're going to do something that we almost never do. Uh, next week, we're actually going to take up a special offering. We, we never do special offerings. If you've been here, uh, rarely do we do that. Uh, but you can contribute directly uh, to z- disaster relief and that also to some churches in that area uh, that we have identified as some partner churches and to aid them in their their ministry to the people that have been affected there. And so if you ever wonder, God, how can you use me? What can I do to help uh, the offering next week and then stopping by that disaster relief and maybe attending the training is a way that God can use you practically to meet needs spiritually. And so I just I normally don't start my sermon off with a commercial, uh, but I just thought it's too important. The timing is too, too great. We had planned this training. Uh, get this. We had planned this training last year. Is that, is that correct? Last year, we had planned the training uh, that we're holding this weekend, not knowing what God was going to be doing or allowing to happen throughout the world. And so just a great timing for you to actually get equipped to meet some needs and share Christ in a very, very tangible, tangible way. Okay, that's my commercial. All right. Uh, The dictionary defines a paradox uh, is this. It is a seemingly contradictory statement that may nonetheless be true. A seemingly contradictory statement that may nonetheless be true. And I think we could all give examples of that, uh, that, that we would look at those things and say, well, that that can't be right. But yet when it's flushed out or it's tested or it's lived out, we say, well, it doesn't look to be right, but it actually uh, is true. And so after studying this week in uh, Philippians chapter three, I, I'm going to argue that, that joy falls into that category. That some of the things that we think absolutely would produce joy or would not produce joy, we look at those things and we say, oh, that would that would have to be true. But it's a paradox because joy comes from places that we think it would not come from. And the places that we do think it should come from are the places that we're going to find out in chapter three actually lead to emptiness and discontentment and discouragement, eventual destruction and all those things. And so most of the methods that would seem to produce joy in a person's heart actually end up being Fool's gold. So, if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning uh, for a message entitled, Joy, It's Not What You Think. Joy, It's Not What You Think. And my experience is this. Most oftentimes, people do not uh, come to a place where they're overflowing with joy because of a lack of effort. I mean, people are working hard. People are putting a lot of energy and effort into trying to be happy in this life. And if we run around and surveyed our culture and say, hey, listen, if I told you that you could work hard and the, and the end result would be absolute happiness, would you pursue that? The overwhelming response of people would be this. I already am. I just haven't got there. I'm just trying to work hard. I think if I got to just this place financially or this place in my career or if my marriage would achieve this certain status or if my kids would perform this way or you know, all these external things that they think would produce joy. But it ends up being fool's gold. We find out here in Philippians chapter three, we're going to skip over chapter two, verses 19 through 30. It's a it's a historical narrative about some additional examples of humility about Timothy and Epaphroditus. We're going to move right on into chapter three, where there is an obvious shift in tone and in intent beginning in chapter three. And so chapters one and two kind of had a fatherly tone. I'll read you a little sample verse, kind of just this overwhelming affection. And then he shifts gears in chapter three and his tone totally shifts. And you'll find out why, because he's engaging in a fight that certainly is worth fighting for. Okay, 
Philippians chapter three, uh, beginning in, in verse one. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I love this and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You hear what he said there? That I may know him. That all of these things I had been pursuing in a former life, all of these things that, that other people thought would bring joy, all of those things I count as rubbish. And when I come to a place that I denounce those things, I enter into a spiritual environment where I finally can know him. Finally can know him. The reason that the, the change of tone here is this. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there in chapter three, uh, beginning in verse one, uh, he, he just has a totally different tone. Matter of fact, let's compare it. Listen to Philippians chapter one. This is kind of the tone that Philippians start off with. Paul writes here and he says, for it's right for me to think about uh, all of you because I have you in my heart. Well, listen, could you not put that on a Hallmark card? Amen. He says, since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners with me in the grace of God, for God is my witness. But I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Is it just me or do you hear that verse? You just want to let our collective. Oh, Paul is so affectionate. He's so fatherly in his tone. He's just overflowing with his affection for the Philippians. But then there's this huge shift. And matter of fact, in chapter three, verse two, three times in one little verse, he says, beware, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilators. And so the whole tone of this shifts. Now, why is that? Let me tell you why. Because Paul was engaging in a fight here beginning in chapter three that it's worth fighting for. And the thing that he was fighting for here beginning in chapter three was the grace of God. And hear me this morning. The grace of God is worth fighting for and standing firm for. It's the grace of God that saves people. It's the grace of God that sustains salvation. It's the grace of God that transforms people. And so Paul's whole idea is standing firm on the sake of the gospel because people are trying to add to it and distort it beginning here in chapter three. And he knows if that happens Hear me this morning, he knows if that happens, if grace and the gospel can be distorted, then the greatest joy, the joy of our salvation can be robbed from us. And some of you here this morning, you walked in and I don't know what happened this week. 
I don't know what your life's been in. I don't know what kind of season you've been in the last couple of weeks or months or maybe years. I don't know what's going on in your background, your childhood, where you're raised. But the one thing you would describe about your salvation is, is this. You would never describe it as the joy of my salvation. You would describe it as the burden, that, that, that obligation I'm trying to live out, that standard of conduct that I keep trying. I'm reminding I'm failing all the time. But you wouldn't look at your salvation as something to be enjoyed, but rather something to be endured with this uh, twisted thought in your head. Well, one day I'll get to heaven and then I'll have a life of joy and it'll be worth it all then. But here until then, it is a life of suffering and misery and there is no joy in my salvation. And so that's what Paul's fighting for here in chapter three. He knows what's coming in. He knows the false teaching that's coming in. He says, oh, beware, beware, beware. I know exactly what they're trying to do. Be on guard. So don't let anyone rob you of the joy of your salvation because they're going to push you in directions and say, hey, listen, joy can be found over here and you're going to run towards it and you're going to get there and you're going to find out it's empty and you'll be discontent and discontent leads to destruction. And all that was free. And I feel much better after getting all that out. But let's just move on here in the text. OK. Let me set the record straight concerning joy. The first way we find this principle in the text is this, is that joy cannot be achieved externally. Joy cannot be achieved, achieved externally. Listen, you can't buy it. You can't work for it. You can't trade for it. You can't steal it from someone else unless they give you permission. You, you can't run towards it and, and grab a hold of it. You can't put it in your pocket. You can't put it in the trunk of your car. You can't bag it up in the grocery line. Joy cannot be achieved externally. That's the idea in verses uh, two through six. He gives a couple of examples where people are pursuing joy from an external capacity. And, and they get there and they find out it's not what it is at all. But before we get to chapters two through six and the places that people pursue joy falsely externally, I want you to look back in, in chapter three, verse one with me and see what he says here. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, in the original language, the word rejoice there is an imperative verb. And so what does that mean? It means it's not something to pray about. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. And actually, in the original language, one uh, scholar, A.T. Robertson, said it's actually best translated this uh, to go on rejoicing that the pattern of my life. And in a form of a command, an imperative, the pattern of my life is to be rejoicing. Doesn't matter my circumstance, doesn't matter how my spouse responds, doesn't matter uh, how foolish my kids are acting, doesn't matter what my employer is doing to me, doesn't matter what that diagnosis was, that the command on my life, according to chapter three, verse one, is to go on rejoicing. It's the habitual pattern of a Christ follower's life. Let me tell you about that command. I have spent so much of my time convincing people. Uh, as a pastor, that commands are things you don't have to pray about. So often I, I encourage people, they've made a commitment to Christ, they've never been baptized. They say, I'm, I'm praying about that. And I say, no, there's really nothing to pray about it. Jesus said to do it. And so you probably should just go on and do it. It's a command. Or I'm going to live generously. I, I'm praying about being generous. That's one of my goals next year. I say, well, it's really not anything to pray about. It's just something to start doing because it's in the form of a command or an imperative. Listen, joy is one of those things that's in the form in chapter three, verse one of an imperative command. You don't have to pray about being joyful. It's the lifestyle that God's called you to as a follower in Jesus Christ. And so if it's a command and it's clear and listen, everybody in here wants it. If I come in here and say, listen, I'm going to promise you overflowing joy when you leave today. Everybody's signing up for that. But you know what happens is this most command of joy. Here's what we do. We sweep it under the rug of personality. Well, that's just how I am. I'm just a little grumpy. 
I've just always kind of been harsh. I, you know, it's just, that's just who I am. You need to just love me for who I am. Listen, God doesn't do that. God loves you so much that he didn't leave you how he found you. God changed you by the power of Jesus Christ. That's how much God loves you. And so in the form of this command, there's no margin for this joyless, cranky, irritable, contentious, argumentative brand of Christianity that so often we find in Bible believing churches. Now, here's what I found in Bible teaching churches is that we're committed to the truth, but sometimes for some reason we're angry about it. Have you seen have you heard that? Have you seen that? Some of you I'm looking at your face. I think you're mad right now. You know, we preach the truth in our church. Okay, listen, nobody's mad at you, man. Come on. Right? And what happens is this. We don't hold this up as a mirror to be gazed deeply into like the book of James talks about. We look at this as a curriculum to be mastered. And when we hold it that way, then guess what? It eventually becomes a club to beat other people with. And so he said, listen, go on rejoicing. Let it be the habitual characteristic of your life that if people don't know anything about you that you work with in your neighborhood, and your circles of influence, they don't know your convictions and your theology and what you believe. The one thing they can look at from a distance and say this, I don't know them that well, but they sure seem to be either a really joyful or b using drugs. And I, I'm not sure which it is, but something is different about them. And I hope it's a by the way, I just want to get that out there because we're in church. OK. So he says this, he says, this is a command, this is a go on rejoicing. But the problem is this. Is we take that and we don't know the direction to point that command in towards and we end up running to some dead ends and detours on the way to joy. All right, let's just play a little game here this morning before we get into chapters two through six. Let's play uh, finish that tune. Okay, you ready? If you're playing, raise your hand. Yep, seven of us, eight, nine, ten. Couple more. Yes. All right. Hey, if you're going to just I want you I'm going to start a tune. All right. And I want you to shout out the rest of it. And if you don't know it, there's 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 a chance you may need to get saved. Are you ready? Here it is. I've been looking for love. Yeah, you're so carnal. I can't believe you knew that song. That's one of my favorite hymns, by the way. I just want to go on record. An urban cowboy, Mabel, with the greatest. <laughs> What's the problem? The problem is this. It's not that we don't want joy and that people don't want joy. It's they go looking for joy in all the wrong places. They go pursuing it and they get there and they they pursue it. And when they get there, they go, this is this is empty. This is not what I thought I was going after. They go looking for joy in all the wrong places. So let me give you two things here in the text. He says this is these are the wrong places. You'll never find joy in these places yet, despite lots of people try to pursue it. The first place is this. It's under the banner of religious performance. It's under the banner of religious performance in verses two and three. And the idea is this. That if I could just do this, God would love me more. And if God loves me more, I'd be more joyful. If I could just achieve this certain thing spiritually, then I get to the place where God would really affirm me and God would really look down in my life and God would pour out his blessings and I'd be overfilled with joy. If I could just do this, then God in turn would love me more and his love would be evidenced by his blessings and those blessings would be evidenced by the joy that overflows my life. Here's the problem with that theology. And I want you to hear me this morning because some of you need to hear this. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. You say, well, how is that? That is it's called grace. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do that would ever cause God to love you less than he does right now. Do You understand that? There is nothing you can do to add to the love of God or diminish the love of God. 
run the band of religious performance. We start working and cranking out good works and all those kind of things, thinking this is going to bring the favor of God and the favor of God will be the blessings of God and the blessings of God will overwhelm my life with joy. And Paul says it is empty because you're adding to the grace of God. You're adding something to the joy of salvation, which is grace and faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verses two and three, what he says here. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, what is he talking about dogs here? What is he describing that he's, he's describing uh, some of your dogs in a negative way. Now, in our culture, uh, we uh, dogs are called man's best friend, right? And they're domestic animals and we love our dogs and, and those that we just, you know, p- people treat their dogs like children. I don't know what that's all about, but, but in our culture, dogs are just revered, right? I don't know how many times people have asked me, just here, Pastor, is it true? Do all dogs really go to heaven? And listen, I just tell them the truth. I say, dogs, yes. Cats, absolutely not. A- Amen? Yes. <laughs> so, but he's. He's not just he's not using dogs like we think of, right? What does he say in chapter three, verse two? Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilations. Three ways to describe the same group of people you see in their culture. Dogs were not domestic, you know, revered kind of things like it's, you know, another child in their culture. Dogs were scavenger animals. And so what he was saying here is beware of these people. Because listen, Paul would go into a place, win people to Christ on his missionary journeys. They'd be new converts, new in the faith, no solid foundation yet about why they believe what they believe. And these scavengers or these dogs would come behind him and try to group in all these converts. All right. They would say, hey, listen, you, you've, you've received Christ and that's a good start. But that's not the that's not the ending point. And they taught this. They were Judaizers. These are false teachers who he's talking about. And what the Judaizers taught was this. That in order to be a truly a Christian, you had to first become Jewish. And so, yes, you receive Christ like Paul's been preaching about. But we're going to come along like scavengers, like dogs behind Paul and let you know that to fully be affirmed by God, you've also got to be circumcised. You've also got to observe these feasts. You've also got to worship on these days. You've also got to uphold all these traditions. If you really want to be affirmed by God, you see what they were preaching? Hey, you're off to a good start. But if you really want joy. If you really want to grow and know Jesus Christ, if you really want to be affirmed by God, where your life is filled with joy and peace and overflowing, then add all of this religious performance on top of those things. And then you'll understand the joy of your salvation. Paul said, beware, they're dogs. They're dogs. They're scavengers coming behind me to scoop up people who aren't firm in their faith yet. We look at the Judaizers and we think, oh, how silly. How could they be so deceived? But can I tell you the same thing goes on in our current culture that we tell people they get started with with Jesus Christ by grace, but their salvation is not secure. They've got to work up their end of the deal. They've got to keep up their end of the bargain if they really want to guarantee they're getting to heaven. Listen, that's adding to the grace of God. Or we tell people that, yes, salvation starts with Jesus Christ. But uh, but if you really want to be affirmed by God, then you've got to go to this certain type of church or you've got to repeat certain words like the Lord's Prayer doxology or you've got to read from a certain version of the Bible, the one that Paul wrote. Amen. You've got to have a certain uh, emotional experience. You've got to express your worship in a certain way. Yes, Jesus Christ was a good start, but to seal your salvation, you've got to take communion. You've got to be baptized to really seal the deal. You know what Paul would look at the people teaching that in our current culture would call them. He would say, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. 
The mutilation there, he's describing a circumcision. He was saying, hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't do, add anything to your standing before God. But we go pursuing that all the time and wondering if I could do more, if I could be more, then God would love me more and he'd bless me more. And those blessings would result in overflowing joy in my life. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. That any time you come to the cross and you say that's a good start, but it's not quite enough. Any time that you think you can add to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Anything when you look at the grace of God being poured out in the person and work of Jesus Christ and you come to a place, you say it's not quite enough. You need to add a little bit more to it. Then guess what? You're going to spend your life pursuing something that you'll never obtain. The joy of salvation coming to a place and resting and saying, listen, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm in need of forgiveness. But thank God in the person of Jesus Christ, I'm accepted in the eyes of God, not because of what I can do, but because of what he's done for me. That's called Grace, and it will change your life. So he come along and he said, hey, listen, these folks are adding, saying you've got to do these things. He said they're evil workers and you will never find joy in religious performance. Love the words of the old hymn at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I receive my sight and now I am happy all the day. So we go pursuing joy and religious performance. And Paul's saying you can't add to what Christ has already done. The second area we go pursuing joy, looking for joy in all the wrong places is this. It's under the banner of personal achievement. Now, the first one happens in the context of the church. Religious performance, right? I mean, some churches teach it. They preach it. God only loves you if you do X, Y, and Z. God's really angry at you if you do X, Y, and Z. You know, just fill in the blanks. And so that happens in the church. But if I were to go out into culture and I took a survey and said, hey, listen, will you find joy through religious achievement in our culture? Like, I don't listen. I'm anti-religious, right? So that's in the church, verses two and three. In culture, verses four through six, the wrong place is this. It's personal achievement. Religious performance in the church, personal achievement. Now, the first one only happens in the church, but this one happens in culture and in the, in the context of the church. And Paul begins to listen. They say, listen, if joy is found, if satisfaction is found in personal achievement, then listen, above all people, I obtained it and it wasn't good enough. What do you say? Look at verses four through six, describing his achievements. He says, I might have confidence in the flesh if that's where it's found. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day exactly how the law prescribed of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I had the best patch on my shoulder you could have a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. You couldn't get more zealous than Paul concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. And the end result, Paul said, after pursuing all that personal achievement was come to the realization in verse seven. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Let me paraphrase verses four and six with you again. He says, I was a church member all my life. I took lots of classes and received a theology degree with honors. Everyone agreed that I was a model Christian. I served on boards and committees and aggressively defended the faith. I was baptized as an infant and adult. I was sprinkled and immersed. Just make sure, right? 
I took communion as it was offered often, and I always gave more than time. I was looked upon by Christians of all denominations. You see, the thing that kept Paul from a true relationship and the joy of salvation wasn't his sin. It was his goodness. And that's the very thing keeping some of you from salvation in Jesus Christ. You say, but Brad, I'm, I'm a good person. And there's a good God and he lives in a good place and good people go there when they die. And I'm a good person. You know what Paul said? All those good things he could have laid to his resume. He said, until I came to a place where I denounced them and realized that Jesus Christ alone was my source of righteousness, then it was the empty pursuit. It was a total waste of time. Matter of fact, he categorized it as rubbish, trash, garbage. The majority of people around us in survey culture, listen to the statistic. Less than 50% of people in our culture survey believe in a literal hell. 90 per, over 90% of people serving in culture believe in a little heaven, though. They like the good news, but they like the bad news, right? Of those 90% of people who said they believe in heaven, 95% of those people said, are you going there? The answer was yes. And when they asked them why, it's because I'm a good person. It's exactly why. I, I just got to be transparent with you. So, so many times uh, when you're preaching, I feel like so many times I'm preaching something you've heard a thousand times. Salvation's not by works, it's by grace. It's through faith alone in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. You can't add to it, you can't take away from it. Salvation's not by works, it's not by works, it's not by works. And I think so many times, should I even preach that point? Should I even go over that? Listen, as long as 95% of the culture believes that salvation's by works, I'm going to keep preaching the grace of God because the Bible says it's the power of God under salvation according to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Keep preaching the grace of God. Calling people to receive it. And so the thing that separated Paul from knowing true joy wasn't his sin. It was his morality and all of his achievements. And we live in a culture that preaches the same thing. Hey, if you want to be happy, just achieve this. Get this reputation. Get that on your resume. Get this in your accounts. Get this on the title of your office. So many times I see this with with children, if you want to achieve joy, then just live out through your kids. Maybe they'll become that scholar, that athlete or that musician that you never became and just keep driving, driving, driving. And hopefully one day they'll achieve a certain level and you'll get some joy, right? And I think the poster child of all of this personal achievement will bring me joy is found uh, under the banner of Hollywood. I mean, listen, if you're famous that, that in our culture, if you're famous, that's the pinnacle you're on the silver screen. People know you. you're on the billboard charts. People know who you are. They clam around you. People drive around and try to take pictures of you. People just want you to put your name on a piece of paper. But yet all of us could rattle off name after name after name of people who arrived at the thing they were pursuing. Personal achievement, hoping it would bring happiness. But their life ended in suicide or an overdose from drugs and alcohol. Why? Because the very thing they're pursuing when they got there, they realized it was empty. It was empty. Listen, in Paul's culture, his Jewish culture to be a Pharisee, he was a rock star. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, what does that mean? Listen, it's like you say, hey, I've been studying this week. Who with? Billy Graham and I. I just call him Billy, you know. He said, well, that's pretty impressive. That was Gamaliel, right? Paul said, listen, I was an absolute rock star. Until I came to the place and denounced all of that and counted as rubbish. Only then did I receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
looking for joy in all the wrong places. Now, Paul is so strong in warning against this. Why is that? And this is just a personal theory. OK, here's the theory is this. It's because if you pursue joy in the wrong places, you'll end up in discontentment because you can't perform enough good works to get joy. You can't achieve enough things to produce joy. It never comes externally. It's always internally from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He said, what's the big deal? Listen, joy pursuing the wrong places will lead to discontentment and discontentment leads to destruction. He said, oh, bro, that's dramatic. You're being ridiculous. But everybody gets discontent, right? And it leads to destruction. Let me give you three examples from the word of God quickly here. Exhibit A is the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. What most scholars call when the women blew it for all of us. Amen. Can I get a witness this morning? I mean, you talk about mission impossible. For Satan, I mean, they're an environment of perfection. I promise you, Eve was the best looking woman Adam had ever seen. Look it up. Never once did Adam have to hear about how great or Eve have to hear about how great Adam's mom's cooking was. Look it up. But yet, despite that environment of perfection, Satan crept in and planted the seeds of discontent. And he said, oh, how can this be a place of perfection when there's forbidden fruit in the middle of it? How can this be a place of perfection when the God who created and placed you here is holding back because he doesn't want you to be as God and all knowing? How can this be a place of perfection if anything is being withheld for you? And he appealed to to her sin nature that things were not as good as they could be. And hear this, not as good as she deserved. And so she and Adam took the fruit. Adam was right there side by side. Genesis chapter three, verse six, took the fruit and ate of it. What did he appeal to her discontent? What did it lead to destruction of perfection? Exhibit A, Garden of Eden. Exhibit B is the nation of Israel. I heard a pastor preaching one time. He said, hey, pastor, he said, if you ever get discouraged and think you've got a tough church to pastor, go back and read the Old Testament. He said, you want to talk about pastoring a difficult group of people? He said, look at the nation of Israel. I mean, Moses, listen, leads them out of Egypt. They get out there. They're one. And listen, what are the, how do they respond to that? Oh, Moses, you're so great. You're so wonderful. We're going to build a, You know, we're going to build a smile. What do they respond? Why did you bring us out here to die? You should have left us back in Egypt. We're so hungry. And so God, in his provision, rains down manna from heaven. You know how they respond? We want to eat. And my kids get in the car and we, after church, go to the drive through and Taco Bell or somewhere nice, White Castle. I mean, I'd listen, there's no expense spared. Well, we want to go to Wendy's. I said, you wicked and perverse generation. No, I don't. <laughs> we want Taco Bell and you gave us Wendy's. And I'm going to give you a spanking too, amen? What happened? What led to their, what led to the place where God calls them, God calls them a harlot? In the Old Testament, God uses strong language. God says, I'm divorcing myself from Israel. And I think on the back burner, God has a future plan. But that's a whole different sermon series. You know what? Start off discontent. We deserve better. You gave us manna. We should have got meat. Matter of fact, we'll engage ourselves in pagan worship just so we can eat the meat that was offered to idols. Where did that start off with? Discontent. Exhibit C, Satan himself. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28. You can piece together the sequences of his fall there. Now you think, well, listen, he, I mean, he was Satan. How can he be happy with himself? I mean, sure, we understand his discontent, right? Here's how the Bible describes Lucifer in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. 
It says he was a created being who had the seal of perfection. I mean, what's there to be discontent about, right? But what did he say? He said, I'm going to be like God and I'm going to be like the Most High. And that discontent led to disobedience. That disobedience will lead to his eventual final destruction in the lake of fire, according to the book of Revelation. You see, discontent in your heart leads to disobedience, which leads to destruction. And how do you get discontent? You start pursuing joy in all the wrong places. And when you arrive there, you'll find out how empty it was. It will leave you discontent. Your discontent will motivate you to disobedience and it will destroy your life. Second paradox about joy is found in this passage. We're, we're running out of time here, so I'm really going to start talking fast. OK, second, <laughs> second paradox about joy in this passage, in this principle is this. It's uh, it's this. It's losing is the key to finding. Losing is the key to finding. paradox. Number one, you cannot receive it externally despite our pursuits. Number two, losing is the key to finding where to have that at. Chapter three, uh, look down at uh, verse eight is what he says. He says, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is faith in Christ. Now, let me give you a little formula here that I call the economy of grace. All right. This is the economy of grace. Economy of grace goes like this. Denouncing our righteousness is the prerequisite to gaining his Denouncing our righteousness is the prerequisite to gaining his. You say, Pastor, why won't most folks ever get saved? It's because they'll never come to a place where they admit they're lost. They'll never come to a place where they say, hey, listen, everything I've got, I'm going to denounce that because righteousness is not found in good works. It's found in the work of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to denounce all this idea I've got that God's going to prove me because of my good works. And when I denounce that, guess what? Then I can receive his. You see, it's losing is the key to finding how many of you in school were grateful whenever a teacher would grade on a curve? Yeah, some of you just said amen for the first time in church, right? Just for the very first time. Now, there's lots of reasons teachers do that. Sometimes the reason is that they may have put things on the test or there may be things on the test they didn't fully cover. And so to compensate, they grade on the curve. Can I tell you this morning, lots of people are hoping that God grades on the curve. Here's the problem. God's never failed to give us the right information we need to attain his righteousness. And so what's the standard of God according to the test? Perfection. You see, I can't do that. That's the whole point. That's why God sent Christ, who was perfect, who died in your place. And so there's a paradox of joy because in our culture, we're conditioned to think in order to experience joy, we've got to build ourselves up, be a self-esteem and self-help and all those things. You know what Paul said? Paul said, until I came and I denounced all my righteousness, only then did I get the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the joy of my salvation. And what you really believe will determine how you behave. And this is really, really important. And I know we're just going around town, really important. So if you're listening, say Amen. If your theology is wrong, then your behavior and your thinking will be wrong. And what you believe in your mind is what gets settled in your heart. And what's in your heart dictates how you feel emotionally. And how you feel determines the decisions you make, which determines the destiny of your life. Let me repeat that. What you believe in your mind is what gets settled in your heart. And what's settled in your heart dictates what's in your emotions. And your emotions motivate your will, which drives your decisions, which determines your 
destiny. You say, hey, that's neat. What's the point? Until you come to the place where you denounce all of your righteousness and rest solely in the grace of God, you end up making decisions out of insecurity and anxiety and performance that are totally contrary. To how you, and you'll feel miserable on the inside. And I've sat across my office and chairs from people all the time. Why did you do that? That's just how I felt. Why'd you feel that way? That's just what I believe about myself. Why'd you believe that when the Bible says this? I don't know. Listen, lose all of your righteousness, solely rest in the grace of God. And only then we have an accurate view of yourself. Only then will you finally be relieved of that desire to prove something to someone. And in the cross, we find out there's nothing to prove and there's nothing to hide. Well, I want to close this morning. Just uh, these some things I want you to take home this morning. First off, you're here this morning and you've, you've been reluctant to come to Jesus Christ. You just think, well, I've got to be a good person. Listen, do what Paul did. Count all your good works as garbage. And then when you come to that place, then you're in a place where you can receive Jesus Christ and his forgiveness for your sins. And number two... I want to ask you a question. How joyful are you? People look at your life and go, they've had a tough go, but it has not robbed them of their joy. Has not robbed them of their joy. Joy is medicine for the soul. Proverbs 17, 22 says this, a cheerful heart brings good healing, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And some of you inside right now are as dry as dirt. And can I tell you this morning that if you'll let him to, then Jesus Christ will renew that grace in your heart and he'll restore to you, just as David cried out, he'll restore to you the joy of your salvation. It's available this morning, but you've got to reach out with an open hand and you've got to receive it. And I'm going to encourage you that very thing right now. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads this morning if you would. you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ because you thought you weren't good enough or because you feel like you've just been too bad or because you feel like you haven't done enough, then I'm going to encourage you to take the path that Paul took in this passage and denounce all of your good works. I'm going to encourage you to take all of your morality and cast it aside 